So the story is told that there was a man named Alfred, and Alfred woke up, and like he did every day, he sat down to read the newspaper. And what began as a normal day for Alfred would definitely not end that way because he was seconds away from a shocking discovery. Alfred made his way through the newspaper, and when he turned to the page of the obituaries, there he saw his name. His death, death was falsely reported, and Alfred, for the next few minutes, received a very strange gift. It was the gift of feedback. Alfred got to read the space in between who he wanted to be and who he really was. And he didn't like what he read. The headline read, The Merchant of Death is Dead. Alfred was an inventor, and among other things, he had invented dynamite. And Alfred's legacy was one of death and destruction. And so that morning, Alfred decided that he would take the gift of feedback, and he resolved to change his legacy. He resolved that morning that all of his wealth would go to promote causes of common good, medicine, education, science. And he actually followed through on his commitment and he changed the course of his legacy. And still to this day, every year, six awards are given. Six of the most coveted awards in all the world in his name, the Nobel Peace Prize. That man was Alfred Nobel. And on one hand, that's a very helpful story for us. We see the power of considering your legacy and the possibility to change no matter where you are. On another hand, the story is not as helpful because unfortunately, if we're honest, it's unlikely that any of us will have such a sensational eye-opening moment where we get to read our own obituary and see so clearly the space in between who we are and who we want to be. And so in you and I, we've got to figure out how to initiate to create those kind of moments to get feedback. And we need to pray that God would bring them our way unexpectedly. And that leads me to tonight. I'm hoping this message will provide one of those awakening moments where you see God's vision of who you're meant to be and you're willing to acknowledge if there's space in between. My topic tonight is, what if you left a legacy? And the reality is, we are all going to leave a legacy. We are all going to be remembered for something. The real question and the real topic tonight is, what if you left a legacy of spiritual impact? And before any of you or many of you check out and think, well, Matty B is talking to the super Christians, the professional Christians... I would say that's not correct. I'm talking to every single person in this room who claims to be a Christian. This is for you. If you're not a Christian tonight, you're going to hear a preview of what God would have for you if you ever became one. But this is for all Christians here. And yes, I will agree, there are definitely specific purposes that God has for each of us that are unique to us. And there are also shared purposes that God has for all of us. No exceptions. Every Christian. You could think about these shared purposes like a Christian 
family creed. So I'll put a picture of the Bradner clan up. You heard from Carissa, my wife Julie and I, we recently celebrated our 21st anniversary and we have five kids. There are seven of us and we're all so different. And my wife and I, years ago, we determined that one of our top priorities was to cultivate what is unique to each of us. So we looked for passions, we take serious preferences, and we look for little glimpses of gifting and skill. And when we discover them, our job is to serve and support every person in the family to be as great as you want to be. We cultivate what is unique to each of us. So in this family, you have a woman who runs a birth center, and she's studying to be a midwife. That's Julia. You have a kid who attends an Ivy League school and travels the world playing a card game. That's the young man second to the left, my oldest, Isaiah. You have another son who's a singer, songwriter, multi-musician, who on January 27th, mark the date, Toby Brander releases his third album. That's the son immediately to the right of me. He's a junior in high school. You've got a competitive rock climber and a young and growing video and photographer in Coleman, my son to the far right. And then you've got the athlete of all of us, the young and up-and-coming track star in Eliana. And lastly, we have Benson, the shredder. My man is straight out of Thrasher magazine. He's a skateboarder, and, and we love it. He just got two quarter pipes for Christmas, and our barn is now a skate park. We take serious the call to cultivate what is unique to each of us, but that's not all. We cultivate what is unique to each of us while always celebrating what unites all of us. If you walked in our house and you yelled, who are we? You would hear back, the Bradner family. We've got a family creed. Seven things that unite all of us. No matter how old you are, no matter what your personality is, you could put this, the creed up. I'm not going to read it. It unites all of us. This is who we are as a family. The Bradner family is united and we are unique. And so it is with the family of God. Yes, he has unique purposes for you. But also, if you're a Christian, there are purposes that unite all of us. And tonight, we're going to talk about one of them. What if you left? You could take that off. I, I hear the murmurs. It's probably we don't speak Wanese. Uh, it's just not a language the Bradners speak. Well, actually, I take that back. It's not a language we understand. It is spoken quite a lot by my little man. Tonight we consider, what if you left a legacy of spiritual impact? And, it, and I'm just saying, it's not bonus work. It's not extra credit. It's part of the family creed. What is this shared purpose? I'll put it this way. If you're a Christian, God has purposed you to follow him close enough that you eventually can lead another to follow him close enough that they eventually can lead another to follow him close enough so that you get the point. We were meant to leave a legacy of spiritual impact in and through the lives of others. And the Bible uses many words and many phrases to talk about this. In the passage we're going to look at, we'll see the most common way, go and make disciples. But the Apostle Paul uses the language of spiritual parenting. Jesus elsewhere uses the term fishers of men. 
We call it spiritual multiplication or multiplying your life. It doesn't matter how you say it as long as you figure out how to live it. You were made for this. You were meant to leave a legacy of people. And this shouldn't surprise us. It should resonate with us. Consider this. One of the largest and most popular categories of books in the personal development or self-improvement genre is time management, right? When people read time management books, their desire is to figure out how to get more things done, complete more tasks, complete more projects, check more boxes in a day. Just the thought of checking a box makes my wife shimmy. She loves checking those boxes, right? We run to time management because we want to do more. But let me ask you a question. And it may seem serious, and it's okay, because legacy is serious. If you imagine yourself on your deathbed, yeah, it's serious, okay. Maybe serious. Imagine you're on your deathbed, and you begin to think about the way you use time on this earth. Here's the question. What do you think would cause you in that moment to regret how you used your time? Or this would be another way to think about it. If you were on your deathbed and you were given the gift of more time, what do you think you would use it for? I don't need to take a poll to know what everybody's thinking. We're not thinking about checking off more boxes and doing more tasks and completing more projects. What comes to our mind is people. We would regret the way we used our time if we neglected the people that mattered most. In other words, when we think of time mismanagement, it's not tasks, it's people. And that intuitive sense is instructive. We know people matter most. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us when we hear the legacy that God created for all Christians is to leave a legacy of people, that you would impact people who would impact people. And when you think about the mismanagement of time in your life and you think about not spending it with your family, Jesus would say, yes, you're right. There's just a little redefinition of family. In Mark, I don't know if we have this text, a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my mother and brother and sister. When family pops in your mind, I should give my time to family, Jesus would say, that's a right feeling. You just got a bigger family than you ever imagined. It's called the family of God. And you were meant to leave a spiritual legacy among them. And if it's true for your life, there's no better time to start than college. That's what tonight's about. And here's how we're going to get there. We're going to focus on a few words that Jesus spoke when he spoke this vision of spiritual multiplications, multiplication over us, it's one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, which it should be. If I'm claiming it's a part of the family creed, no exceptions. It's who you were meant to be as a Christian. 
It's known as the Great Commission. It's spoken in the 28th chapter of Matthew after Jesus has lived, after he was crucified on the cross, and after he resurrected, he speaks these words. And some of you are going to hear the passage for the first time. And I'm so excited for you. And there are others of you who are going to hear this passage and you've heard it many times. And honestly, I'm worried for you. I'm worried that you think you've gotten it. That you think you've gained everything that God has for you in this. And I just promise you, even if you're a staff member, if you would be willing to listen, you're going to see something new tonight. So let's read the passage <laughs> Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's start with verses 16 and 17. What a moment. Among the disciples, we see two groups. The shouters, they're worshiping, they're trusting, they're confident. And the doubters. They're struggling, they're scared, and they're unsure. And the first thing I want you to see is that the doubters still showed up. Don't let a doubt, don't let a question, don't let a season of darkness keep you from the people of God and purposes of God. Secondly, notice what Jesus does not do. He doesn't pull out a football and say, doubters, y'all come over here, toss this around for a while. I got a word for the worshipers. He doesn't do that. It says he says to all of them, shouters and doubters. And this is good news because some days we feel like a shouter right? Vision's clear. God is near. Let's get after it. But other days, and maybe most days, you feel like a doubter. You've got questions. And you know what? The purpose of God is bigger than how you feel on any given day. It's part of your identity as a child of God. And it's also good news because participating and leaving a spiritual legacy, it's not just for those who always appear to have it together. We do each other a disservice when we create a faith community that somehow suggests or acts as though doubts and questions mean there's something wrong with you. Actually, if you read the Bible, some of the greatest declarations of faith grew in the soil of doubt. The one who made the greatest New Testament declaration is a disciple we call Doubting Thomas. He made his doubt known and Christ met him there. So don't create a faith community that says doubts aren't welcome. Jesus said to those who are on fire, I got something for you. And to those whose faith is flickering, he says, I got something for you. And it's the same thing. And that's good news to us. Leaving a legacy for all Christians, shouters and when you're a doubter. And so the passage continues. Jesus came and said to them, all authority... And heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore, go and make disciples. Jesus is going to begin and end 
the call for what we should give our lives to with two reasons why. And this is the first reason why. He plays the authority card. Now, as a father of five, I know the authority card, right? Dad, why do I have to go to bed? Because I'm dad, and I say so, right? It used to work. Um, but, you know, I hope you don't hear Jesus' words like that. I hope you don't hear his playing the authority card like that. I don't know what your experience in life has been with those who have authority. But I can tell you when it comes to Jesus, when he plays the authority card, his authority is rightful and it's delightful. It's rightful because as Colossians says, all creation was made by him and for him. And Hebrews 1 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, Jesus is not sending us on a mission that is up to us to pull off. Jesus, is, he's saying, I'm sending you on a mission that's secure because I'm in control. While it involves you, it's not dependent on you. His authority is rightful. But it's also, and, and, and most of you need to hear this, his authority is delightful. When you hear him play the authority card, your heart and ears ought to perk up. You ought to get, ought to get excited because you know his authority is for your good. Because you remember back, if you know the Bible, and if you don't know, as you heard uh, last evening, you can know it, but you remember back to the last time he played the authority card. Right before he went to the cross, this is what Jesus said. The reason my Father loves me is I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Did you see it? Jesus said it was by my authority I went to the cross to lay down my life for you. He uses his authority for your good. People say our sins put Jesus on the cross. No, they didn't. Our sins made it so you and I should have been on the cross. But his authority put himself there for us. Nobody makes Jesus do anything. And so when he lays the authority card, you ought to say, I'm listening. I know this is for my good. And some of you, just like Chad said last night, you, might won't, you won't pursue him because you don't want him. And you won't obey him because you don't understand. It's for your good. Leaving a spiritual legacy is not dependent on your power. It's for our good because he attaches his authority to us, to it. So now we get to the core of the passage, what we're called to do and how. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. First, what's a disciple? And then what does it mean to make disciples? A disciple, very simply, is a follower of Jesus. It's someone who's believed the gospel. 
that God through Christ will forgive all the bad you've done and through faith in him will give for you the good, the 100% good you haven't done so that you could stand righteous before God. That's what it is to be a disciple. But Jesus continues on and he says, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about how to make disciples. And hundreds of books have been written about that little phrase, make disciples. I just want to point your attention to two things he says right here in the text. Baptize and teach. You see that? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. This is actually a really good framework. It's a simple framework. And I'm going to make it so that it's easy to understand. But if you're a Christian and you've been following him for some time, I want you to begin thinking as I say, this is how you make disciples. Who and where and how can you begin to do this? And if you're a young Christian and you're here, I'd love for you to begin thinking, who can I invite to come alongside and be this for me? So let's start with baptize them. And again, I'm going to make this simple, bottom shelf. Baptism is an outward sign that happens within the context of other Christians, usually a church. It's a sign that declares to others, I am a child of God and I am now a part of the family of God. You can think about it simply this way, that baptism is the process to identify as a Christian. And Jesus says this is the first and core component of making disciples. When somebody becomes a Christian, who is going to help them learn to identify as a Christian? Who's going to help them? This is what I mean. Who's going to help them identify as a Christian by learning to share their testimony? You say, what's well, a testimony? It's the story of when you trusted in God and became a Christian, said concisely in three to five minutes. Who's going to help them do that? Why do you need a testimony? Well, you get to put words on a paper that describe when God won your heart. It's a gift to you and a blessing to others. Who is going to teach how to identify as a Christian by connecting with other Christians? That's a core part of being a Christian, is meeting family members, right? And we got some weird ones, like every family. But who's going to help a Christian say, hey, here's a church that we could go to. Here's our campus ministry and where we could meet. Who's going to do that? Who's going to help them identify as a Christian by learning to share their faith? If sharing your testimony is a story of how you became a Christian, learning to share your faith is a story about how others can become a Christian. Who's going to help young believers learn how to identify as a Christian? That's the first part of making disciples, as Jesus said. The second part is this, teaching. Teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. If baptism represents identifying as a Christian, teach them is the identity of a Christian. When somebody becomes a Christian, 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new creation. Who's going to help teach them their new identity in Christ? Is anybody up for that? Who's going to help teach them how to walk with God through what Chad talked about last night, the Word and prayer? Who's going to teach them how to walk by faith and not by sight? Who's going to teach them to encounter trials and suffering and keep your hope? Jesus says, 
you were made to leave a spiritual legacy, which is being a disciple who can make disciples, who can make disciples, who can make disciples. And if anybody here says, I'm in, where do I start? He would just say, baptize and teach. In other words, I summarize it this way. Making disciples is helping someone identify in light of their new identity. <laughs> Who will do that? Help them identify in light of their identity. And I hope many in this room, you're here this week and, and you know it's time. It's time for you to lean into spiritual leadership. And when I say, who's going to help young believers on your campus identify as a Christian and grow in their identity as a Christian? You, you know God's saying, that's you. And then there's others of you here. You say, I'm not ready for that. But I want to participate. And I would say to you, the first thing is go to your staff or go to a leader and say, help me continue to grow, to learn to identify with my new identity as a Christian. But then secondly, I want to share with you quickly three things Three ways that all people can be a part of the purposes of God, no matter where you're at in your faith. The first is to be a recruiter. And maybe you don't like that word. Use another word. Be a summoner. Be an inviter. Be a wooer. Use whatever word you want to use as long as we're clear. When the New Testament pages are opened, recruiters are everywhere. In fact, take Simon, who Jesus calls Peter, the rock that the church is built upon. Arguably one of the two most famous New Testament Christians other than the Apostle Paul. How did he come to faith? John chapter 1 says he was recruited by his brother. Andrew met Jesus and he went and recruited his brother and brought him to Jesus. Here's the point. And many of you need to hear this. You don't have to wait until you're able to help someone grow in order to be a part of their growth. I'll say that again. You don't have to wait until you're able to help somebody grow to be a part of their growth. You can recruit them to people and places where they can grow. Many of you are here experiencing God because somebody recruited you. And you know what? They got in on the purposes of God of making disciples Secondly, you can be an evangelist. Evangelism is sharing the good news of Jesus, inviting people to follow him. It's exciting to recruit, but it's exhilarating to have the understanding and the skills to help lead another person to Christ. This is one reason I would recommend considering your summer projects. It's an environment where you can learn how to be an evangelist. I am overwhelmed at the amount of people that God has allowed me to be a part of ushering them into the kingdom. And I just trace it back to people who taught me to share my faith. Tomorrow morning I'm going to give some perspective that's transformed my personal evangelism. But let me mention one thing tonight. One of the great lies is that you have to be a spiritual giant in order to lead somebody to Christ. It's just not true. One of my spiritual heroes is a man named Epaphras. You know Epaphras, right? Nah, y'all don't know Epaphras. Very few people do. Well, in Colossians 1, we meet Epaphras. The Apostle Paul is talking 
to the church in Colossae. And he says this, the gospel which is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. He's saying this is a global force. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras. Later on in Colossians, we read that he was one of them. He was a local boy. He was a local boy. You put that together, the global force of the gospel is advancing through local faces. How's the gospel going to come to your family, to your fraternity, sorority, athletic team, dorm? Probably through a local face. Why not you? Why not you? You, don't, you can get in the game. You could be a recruiter. You can be an evangelist. And lastly, you can be a discipler. A disciple maker is somebody who's grown to a place of maturity. That they're able to intentionally help another Christian grow to maturity. Who one day can help another Christian on and on. And here's the thing. If I'm, I'm pleading with you. Don't just try to fit this in your life. Center your life around it. The Bible's clear that there's joy in recruiting. There's joy in evangelism. The greatest joy is reserved for the disciple makers. Listen to this right here. For now we really live if you are standing firm in the Lord. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. How many Christians are leaving joy on the table because they're, they've never got in the game to say, I want to be discipled and become a mature Christian that I can help another. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of Jesus when he comes. Listen to what Paul is saying. He's saying, if the heavens were to open now and Jesus were to return, what is it that we would raise the roof at? What would we point to? Would we point to him and say, you, you, all glory to you? Paul says, no, that's right. Would we point to himself and say, a dead man made alive by you? No, it says, what is our glory? In the presence when he returns, Paul says he's going to point to those whom he discipled. In other words, they say, Jesus, you took a dead man and brought him to life and used him to take other dead people and brought him to life. Look at how glory, how much glory you get. Who would you point to? You can point to Jesus if you're a Christian, and it's right. You could point to yourself if you're a Christian. But what if you could point to another that you had helped grow in maturity and reproduce. Wouldn't you want to? Remember I told you my man Epaphras, he brought the gospel to the Colossians. He didn't stop there. Colossians 4, 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness, he worked hard for you. He wasn't content to see somebody come to Christ, stop there. He wanted to see them grow to maturity, that they would have a shot at reproducing. And that's what it means to leave a spiritual legacy. Everybody can be a recruiter. 
Every Christian can be an evangelist. I pray you could be a disciple maker. In August of 1995, don't even say how many years left until y'all were even born. 28 years ago, I was in my freshman dorm, along with a number of my teammates, and there was a knock on the door. Before I tell you who knocked on my door, we're going to go back another 25 plus years. 50 years ago in Birmingham, Alabama, there was a pastor by the name of Frank Barker, and his wife was named Barbara. And Barbara got to know the college students in her area, and one of them was a young man by the name of Curtis Tanner. And Curtis had all kinds of problems, especially girl problems. And he knew that Barbara Barker was wise and she would listen to him. He was not a Christian. And Curtis Tanner would often go drinking, and late at night he would call Barbara Barker and talk about girls. And Barbara was so sweet, she would talk to Curtis while she laid in bed. And Frank would say, who are you talking to? She would say, Curtis. She'd say, hang up with that old bum. And he remember, he's a pastor. She would say, he's going to become a Christian. And in classic Frank, he tells it, he would say, no, he's not. <laughs> and so Frank began to meet with Curtis. And Curtis became a Christian. And Frank started helping him grow up to maturity. And Curtis began to spend time with other college students. And he met a young, confident quarterback on the football team by the name of Mike Heron. And Curtis shared Christ with Mike, and Mike became a Christian, and he began to help Mike grow up to maturity. And Mike got a vision, and he was at West Georgia University, and he was sharing Christ with football players. And a handful of those football players came to know Christ. And one of them was a man by the name of Neil Gooch. And Neil Gooch committed to being discipled, to raised up as a mature believer. And Neil Gooch was in Statesboro, Georgia, Georgia Southern, and he met a guy by the name of Joe Naramorth. I can do this. My daughter was here. She said, Daddy, keep it together. And Joe was not a Christian. He was living for the approval of man and for outward appearance and for the next girl who came his way. And he found himself in a real big bind, a relational bind. And he prayed, God, if you get me out of this, I'll take you serious. And God got him out of the relationship. And it wasn't a day later, he saw somebody on campus that invited him to a Christian meeting. And he knew it was God's way of saying, I did my end of the deal. It's time for you to do yours. And he walked into that Christian meeting. And guess who he met? He met a guy by the name of Neil Gooch who had been led to Christ by a guy named Mike, who had been led to Christ by, name, by a guy named Curtis, who had been led to Christ by a couple named Frank and Barbara. And Joe Naramore came to Christ, and Joe began to grow up into maturity. And 28 years later, Joe Naramore knocked on a dorm room door, and on the other side of the door was me. Before I tell you about what happened when I met Joe, I'm going to show you who was in, the, in that dorm room. It was this group right here. It was me and my buddies. And we were knuckleheads. And I'm on the far right, double fisting some nasty beer. I got my hair pulled up in a ponytail. And I was all about soccer. I was all about partying and doing enough school to keep those two rolling. God wasn't on the list. 
In fact, a week before, I was at an off-campus party, and it was time to refill my red Solo cup. And I walked over to the keg, and there was another freshman soccer player. Her name was Lindsay, and I'd met her during preseason, and I guess I was feeling good. It's time to refill. But I decided to ask her out. This is a true story. I said, Lindsay, where are you going next Tuesday? She said, I'm sorry. Or we want to go out. She said, I'm sorry I have plans. I said, where are you going? She said, I'm going to this on-campus Christian meeting. And without thinking, I said, well, that's where I was going to take you. I know. It gets worse. Don't worry. Her eyes got big. I said, really? I was like, yes, God is a big part of my life. And, uh, and so I ended up in that kind of, it's bad. <clears throat> Fifteen minutes into the meeting, I looked at her. <clears throat> I said, you like this? The language they spoke, the jokes they made, the songs they sang. She shook her head and we left. And I remember walking out of that meeting thinking, I guess Christianity is not for me. And a couple days later, Joe Naramore was willing to be awkward so we didn't have to. And enter this space and just be boldly normal. And we began a relationship. And every time we talked, he brought up spiritual things. And I can't tell you anything other than every time we talked about the Bible, I had the opposite feeling. That's when I walked out that night. I think Christianity is for me. And God began to pursue me. And in November of 1995, I turned from my sin and trusted in Christ. I got on my knees and I pulled out a blank sheet of paper and I wrote my life to the Lord. And I dated it. And I left the whole paper blank. You fill in the details, God. And I signed the bottom of it. And I decided to call Joe and thank him. And my intent on calling was to say, we got there, bro. Thank you. See you in heaven. Fifteen minutes went by. See, I thought it was the ending. But I done messed up because I got in the spiritual lineage of a family of disciple makers. And Joe sat down with me and he said, Matty B, I want to tell you what's happened in your life. And he opened up my Bible and I'll never forget it. It was a brand new Bible. That thing was almost like the shoes my daughter got me. Straight out the box, right? And he opened it up and he went to 1 John 5, 13. And he said, Matty, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. And he had a pen and he said that you may know that you may know, that you may know. And every time he's saying it, he was circling it. And I'm like, it's starting to bleed through, bro. It's, you know. and, and he said, you may know because of faith in Christ, you're a Christian. It's not because of what you've done. And then he pulled out a card and he wrote 2COR517. He said, this is your first scripture memory verse. I said, scripture, what? He shook his head. He pulled out another card. He wrote PS1199. Comma 11. He said, this is your first scripture memory verse on why you're going to memorize scripture. And then that's your second one. A couple days later, how you doing? I said, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. He said, what about Psalm 119? I said, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He said, Maddie, what do you think about sharing your testimony? I said, by test of what? He said, it's how you came to Christ. I was like, yeah, I got practicing a little bit, but that's fine. He goes, no, no, not with me. With like a group of people. I was like, when? 
He's like, tonight? That night I stood at a campus meeting and I shared my testimony. A couple days later, we're in the student activity center. The teammate walks by. He said, Maddie, let's go share with them. I'm like, nah, brah. We ain't doing this. He's like, that's fine. I'll do all the talking. We went over. He said, how's it going, et cetera. He said, anything going on with your life? But team, was like, nah. He's like, Matt's had some big stuff happen in his life. He'd be happy to share with you. And I shared. And you know what? He wasn't forcing me. He wasn't pushing me. He knew that I wanted God to use my life. But honestly, and somebody needs to hear this, and I wish I put in my notes, I was afraid. In Mark 10.32, if you take notes, you write down Mark 10.32. It says that they were on the way to Jerusalem where Jesus would be killed. It said Jesus walked ahead of them. He was going to die and he walked ahead of them. And it says that those who followed him were amazed. They had this wonder and they were afraid. They had this worry. And that was me and it's probably you And I thank God that somebody pushed me in. And you need to ask somebody to push you in. Joe invited us into a Bible study. And at the end of the first Bible study, he said, before we close, would anybody like to pray that God would use this room to reach the world for Christ? I was like, man, I don't feel comfortable praying to myself, much less asking God to do some crazy stuff like that. Nobody would pray. So Joe said, I'll pray. And he started praying. And I had to do it, y'all. You know, my eyes closed. I'm like, and I looked, and there was Tyler, and Tyler was looking, <laughs> and there was Cubby, and Cubby was looking, and Eric. We were all looking, and we just finally just started to, you know, the weird look. And it's like, and it was Joe. His eyes closed, and I could picture him today. He was praying for us. You can put that picture of Joe up if it's not. My man Joey on the far left still looks the same. Me on the far right, not so much. <laughs> He was praying, and you know what? God has literally used that room to reach the world for Christ. Joe was discipling me, and I'm so grateful to say that by God's grace, the generations have continued through my life. This morning, I was thinking, who should I share about in the family tree? And at 9.20 this morning... My phone buzzed with a text out of the blue from a man named Julius Thomas. Put it up. I put the text in here. Jazzy said to me this morning, Yo, Maddie, I hope all is well, bro. I wanted to ask if you had time to talk about my spiritual family tree, which is my spiritual family tree. I know you and Joe, of course, but before that I'm not as clear on. I wanted to know. Because I'm doing a sermon this Sunday on evangelism and wanted to end with my own story. And so I began to think of Julius. Julius is the second one from the left. There was Cam and Julius and Hassan. All three came to Christ on the same basketball team and began to leave a spiritual legacy. And so I just thanked him. I said, I'm actually in Missouri and I'm going to talk tonight about what we've lived. And he's like, go get it, bro. Crush it. And so I then began to think of Evan. I'm I'm almost finished, I promise. I began to think of a guy named Evan. You can put it in this next picture. I'm squatted down on the far right. Evan is on the top row, fourth from left. I met Evan when he was a freshman at Virginia Tech in 2006. We got on an intramural soccer team together. And every time Evan and I developed a great friendship, 
And every time I invited him over for food, he was there. And every time I invited him over for spiritual things, he was not there. <laughs> and finally, I was like, man, I got to figure this out. So I called Evan. I was like, all right, here's the deal. Uh, you excited about Christmas break? He was like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to just do nothing. I was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. Will you go with me to be with hundreds of Christians for five days, lots of talks. We're going to be singing Christian songs. You're going to ride there with me and my family. We're going to play VeggieTales the whole way there. We're going to play it on the way back. Would you come with me to this conference? He was like, nah, Maddie. I said, well, what if I called you in January? And I gave you a little book that was written by an atheist who became a Christian. Would you be willing to meet up for 30 minutes a week and talk about a chapter? I mean, think about it in light of the first question. Yeah, I'll do that. I said, I knew it, bro. I knew it. In January, we got up week after week as we read More Than a Carpenter. God was pursuing Evan. And on the day before the Virginia Tech massacre, April 15, 2007, Evan and I sat in my car and he repented of his sin and he trusted in Christ. And we began the process of raising up a disciple maker. And I'll never forget walking through Virginia Tech's campus and he asked me a question one day and I responded and asked him back the question and he stopped like he had seen a ghost. He said, hold on a second. You always do this. I ask you a question you ask me the question because you want me to know how I would answer. Are you thinking I'm going to do this with somebody one day? And he started backing up. He said, are you thinking I'm going to do this? And I got to give him that smile that Joe used to give me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're going to do it. So a few years later, Brandon was in the cafeteria. And he asked a baseball player. I'm sorry. Evan was in the cafeteria and asked a baseball player if he wanted to study the Bible. And there was a freshman named Brandon who overheard him. And Brandon had been wrestling with life, and so he followed after Evan. And he said, hey, I'd like to read the Bible. And Evan got to lead Brandon to Christ and raise him up to be a disciple maker. And I could continue with Brandon's generations, but this is why I picked those two. I've been a part of both of their weddings. Between them, you can put the next picture, please. Between their families, please put the next picture, they have six kids. My wife has been in the delivery room for five of the six kids. The sixth, the one that she wasn't, none of us knew him when he was born. A number of years ago, God burdened the Bradner clan to enter the game of foster care and welcoming children who didn't have a home to come and be in ours. And one of our foster children, you can go to the next slide, was a young man by the name of Blaze. Isaiah's holding Blaze. And we loved Blaze like he was our own. And there came a time where Blaze needed a forever family, and we didn't feel God had called us to be that family. And Brandon, my spiritual grandson, her great-grandson, I don't know how it works. Anyways, Brandon and Sarah came up and said, we believe God's called us to adopt Blaze, and please put their family picture. Blaze is on the far left. They moved down the street from us. And I share that to say this. When Evan came to faith and I began to raise him up to be mature, 
so that one day he could raise up a man to be mature. I had no clue that the man, one of the men Evan would raise up, would be dad to a kid we love so much. His name is Judson Blaze. My wife's nickname is JB. He's named after my wife. The point of all that is this. The greatest joys in the kingdom of God are reserved for those who get involved in becoming a disciple and growing to maturity that you could make one. I promise you, on my deathbed, I will think back with satisfaction at the people that God has allowed me to impact and that has impacted me. So I'll finish the passage and then I'm going to sit down. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. At the beginning, Jesus gives the promise of his power and he ends with the promise of his presence. There's no greater assurance in all of the Bible than that right there. I am with you. Now, when we hear this phrase, it often feels like a sweet, feel-good, comfortable slap on the side of a coffee mug as you have a blanket over you by the fire type phrase. But if you know the Bible and you hear God end the call to leave a spiritual legacy with, I will be with you, you should say, hold on, why did you say that, God? Why did you say that, God? Why, of all the phrases, when you call me to leave a spiritual legacy, did you have to end it with, I will be with you? What am I talking about? There's a principle in Scripture, and it's this. God gives his greatest comforts for those who face life's greatest challenges. I'm not a big roller coaster guy. I'll ride them and I'll enjoy them. But before I get on any roller coaster, I have one question. What kind of safety harness does it have? And it's not that I'm worried about the safety. I'm actually pretty convinced I'm going to die on all of them. Like even the little mouse one. I'm literally like, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know, my seven-year-old's like, Dad, you okay? Like, I'm going to die on all of them. I ask, what kind of safety harness does it have? I want to know, does it have a seatbelt strap? Does it have a lap bar? Or does it have one of those shoulder harnesses that come down from above? Y'all know those? Like, if that one, if you got one of those, you better be comfortable because when it secures, you ain't moving, right? If there's a little something on your backside that's like pinching, it's going to stay pinched, right? You can't get out. It's the most secure. In other words, I've learned the more secure the harness, the wilder the ride. I think some of you know where I'm going. When God ends the vision to leave a spiritual legacy with the words, I will be with you, you better prepare yourself. There's no more secure comfort from God. It's like the shoulder harness from above coming down saying, it's about to get wild. And I share this because I'm afraid that you hear stories like generations of of disciple makers like mine and think that it was easy and think that it wasn't full of tears and pain and that's just not correct if you don't know it's about to get wild you're not going to stay in it do you know what God told Moses 
when he sent him to confront the most feared man on the planet, Pharaoh. I will be with you. Do you know what God told Gideon when he sent him to fight thousands with 300? I will be with you. Do you know what he told Joshua whenever he went out to fight? I will be with you. What is the context in Psalm 23 when he says, I will be with you? Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Are you getting a theme here? He doesn't waste this promise. He gives his greatest comfort when you're going to face life's greatest challenge. In Isaiah 43, when he says, I will be with you, what's the context when you walk through the fire? In Acts 18, when they want to kill Paul, he says, I will be with you. In Matthew 20, when he says, I will be with you, it's, it's the context of confronting somebody in their sin. In other words, I hope you get it. When he ends the vision to be a disciple maker, I think you ought to say, God, I want that more than anything in the world. And then I think you need to buckle up. You need to band up and get together with others because it's going to be a wild ride and you're never going to make it if you think that God gives his greatest comforts for life's easiest challenges. It doesn't work that way. Leaving a spiritual legacy is worth it. It's for your good. But it is a wild ride. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that in some way tonight, we would have a moment like Alfred Nobel, where we just think, what legacy am I leaving? The grades are good. The resume is good. The achievements are good. The friendships are good. But what legacy am I leaving? Is it one of people impacting people for Christ? Lord, I pray that you would invite us up into this, that, that there would be a room full of people saying, who's going to help me identify with my identity? And there will be others that say, I'm ready to get pushed in. And God, that we would just experience the joy of generations of faith. And God, in this moment, I thank you for Joe. I thank you for a sinful, flawed human who was just willing to be awkward so I didn't have to, to step in a room that appeared to have it all together. But we were so thirsty. We were thirsty for you. I thank you. I pray you would bless him. Bless his wife and family tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.